Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Judgment Call, a podcast where I talk to risk takers, adventurers, travelers, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. My name is Torsten Jacoby, and I'm your host. In this episode of the Judgment Call podcast, Mike and I talk about why entrepreneurship is a major driver in this world to alleviate poverty, increase freedom, and increase wealth. Why is entrepreneurship of the last 30 years different than the one before? And what role large internet platforms play in this? Also, we talk about what opportunities are there for entrepreneurs currently in the life sciences and healthcare field. We're also going to talk about why Opentronics might be a real game changer in the field. Also, we talk about how large, how difficult is it to get large enough data sets for AI in the life sciences? And should patients be able to sell their own medical data? Additionally, Mike has news on what single-cell DNA analysis will do and how injectable machines will change the field of life sciences in the next 10 years. Also, Mike introduces us to the idea of staying 28-year-old forever. And he has a lot of thoughts on how aging and the changes of income change the way we have children and when we have children and how many we have. Also, we're going to talk about is innovation related to art? And will learning in social media be done with the help of an AI that helps us interact with other internet AIs? Also, we talk about are we repeating the issues we had with cancer testing with the current COVID testing? This episode of Judgment Call is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. Mighty Travels Premium finds the travel deals that you really want and it finds them as they happen. We screen 450,000 airfares every day to give you the best deals in economy, premium economy, business, and first class. We also make recommendations for four and five star hotels all over the planet when they are much cheaper than they usually are. Thousands of subscribers have saved more than 95% on their airfare tickets and have flown the business class, life-led, transcontinental using our deals. In case you didn't know, Americans, Europeans, and many other nationalities can now travel to more than 80 destinations again. Give it a shot and try a Mighty Travels Premium for free for 30 days today. You can sign up at mightytravels.com slash MTP. For everyone who's troubled with all these characters, go to MTP for you. That's just five characters, mtp4u.com, and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Really excited today to have Mike van Alstein on the Judgment Call podcast. Mike is in... Uh, Innovator, entrepreneur, futurist, and he really is an entrepreneur at heart. He has worked in various ventures in the life sciences field, and I have a ton of questions for him, so I'm really um, excited to get started with this. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm very good. I'm here in Mexico, so you might hear a couple of weird sounds in the background, some party music. Well, that sounds like a good day. Yeah, I'll reserve a pina colada for you. <laughs> nice. Um, I'll try. I'll try. So, you know, I ask many people when before they come on the show, but uh, also like in real life. Um, I even talk to people in real life sometimes. I know that sounds weird. And I ask a lot of people, what is an experience that changed their worldview kind of in an instant? Something that transformed you from a worldview that you had and you've been holding dear for quite some time and then it changed quite quickly and 
you told me something really interesting when we spoke earlier. Um, well, what happened to you? Yeah, so, you know, early on in my career in the really the second company that I started, I was running software that really helped in manufacturing and automation. It's a classic go in, write software, optimize efficiencies. And then unfortunately, that tends to turn into people being either laid off or let go. And, and I had an opportunity to work with the Ottawa County Board of Mental Health and Retardation inside of Ohio. And it was actually quite the opposite experience. They wanted to save jobs by automation because the company that they were doing return services for had grown to such a scale that they no longer wanted to process the manual paperwork that came with the returns of their audiobook product. And you know, through the, through the course of that exercise, you grow close with the people that you're working with, but one of the things that I hadn't really understood was that sometimes the mentally different um, have exceptional strength. And so there was really this no physical contact kind of rule just because of personal safety. And there was a gentleman yep. there, his, his name was Tim, and it happened to be the last day that I was there and they had a cake and kind of a little going away celebration since I wouldn't be around anymore. And I was getting ready to walk out and I'm not a small guy. I've always been 250, 260, about six foot tall. And Tim tore me off the ground like a rag doll and just gave me a big hug. And he, you know, after that sat me down and I was like, well, Tim, what's going on? He goes, you know, last night I went home and I told my mom I'm smart now because I can use a computer. And you made that happen. You know, he said it in his own way, in his own words, but effectively that's a paraphrasing of what he said. And, you know, after that day, I just couldn't go back to doing that heart-wrenching job where effectively you're increasing efficiencies and eliminating people's jobs and sold that company and went and worked in the nonprofit world for three years. So it was really a life-altering experience. That is a major shift, and uh, it's it's something that really impacted the next couple of years, right? Of you, you worked in a different startup. You, you, you went from for profit to non profit. Um, that, that that's a major shift. I mean, not a lot of people have that. That they can trace it back to one single moment where they feel like, "Whoa, that that really changed my worldview." I, I find that an amazing story. Uh, yeah, and, and it's interesting how how things you know ebb and flow and. Working for a nonprofit, they really focused heavily on the prevention of child abuse. So just being in that space, it's it's very heart wrenching to actually see many of the problems that really befall a large portion of America, and lots of that is just driven by poverty, which kind of has driven a large portion of the latter portion of my career on the side projects that I work on on top of what I do in my my day job. So. You know, how, how do we address these issues of poverty and really solve systemic pro uh, poverty? If you look like southern Chicago, you know, that you have people whose best career opportunity is to be a drug dealer. You know, we have to be able to change that if we're going to ever really change the course of those communities and really help people out and up. Yeah, that is such a big topic and it's so important. The, the, there isn't a lot of good answers i was just debating that today because i'm here in mexico and uh, the place i'm in is kind of the a big amazon warehouse for illegal drugs so whenever you go outside the secure area you get offered any drug on the planet for seemingly just a few pesos and i always feel like this is this is the best career you can have here is make money with drugs maybe do some money laundering 
and then hopefully get out before it kills you uh, by the age of 40 and retire. And that seems really odd. I mean, there's there's a lot lot of intractable problems that are that are inside of this. But I think this whole legalization of drugs might change um, a couple of those effects. But it's a much easier issue than than solving, as you say, systemic or like intrinsic poverty in a lot of places. Do, do you have like a framework you, you're working on in order to change that, or do you have like a, I don't know the one, two, three? If you if you could change things, would you would you would do? Uh, well, I don't know about a one, two, three, but definitely a handful of areas that I I think we could focus on is. You know, for the most part, everybody now looks towards a company to be the provider of income and they've moved away from entrepreneurship. And especially in these areas, it's going to be hard to attract major retailers or any major existing brands. But if you're making minimum wage at McDonald's or whatever fast food or convenience store that happens to be there, I think most people could start their own business in the service industry and make two to three times that amount of money and really help build the base of their communities. I think yeah. another area that, you know, um, you know, so entrepreneurship as a method to grow, and I struggle, I think there are things that governments could do differently. Um, there's always you're, this counter- You're preaching thing. to the choir here. Um, that's yeah. kind of one of the, the main messages I want to get out. And I, I think this is what, what Nassim Taleb has in one chapter. And I'm like, holy smokes, he finally got there. You know, he, he comes from the world of finance and he writes tens of, probably 10 books um, that are you know highly interesting and I think some of the best books I've ever read that take a little bit to dive into and then there's in his latest book about that he he calls his book fragility or anti-fragility which is fascinating fascinating read one chapter is about entrepreneurship and he says this is basically the thing that we need in order to cure the world of most of their evils because it is a voluntary it B is driven by the individual who takes a risk um, and C because it in order to be a successful entrepreneur or to be any entrepreneur that goes through life and has something to eat let's put it this way has any kind of income you need to provide something that makes other people's lives better and that might be something you know extremely small that, that we don't have to think about entrepreneurship in the ways of changing the world for everyone immediately right now and make trillion dollars and then retire in two years it is something that uh, might be and you gave me that example of, of a laser cutter or um, you had another example in in a hospital or i actually forgot the specifics but <laughs> it's it's there's a lot of um there's a lot of good to be had from just offering something that will other peop- make other people's lives instantly better. It could be service, could be a product, and there's barely any downside to it. And we, we've forgotten that this was the strength of America, and certainly that was in the, uh, in the beginning a British idea, Adam Smith's idea, that those are the seeds of improving everyone's lives. And for some reason, we, we've ta- been going down this path and seeing um, as you said earlier, it's a corporation or it's the government or it's it's kind of something we can scam um, through the word. It's not a technical term. It doesn't have to be a scam. It doesn't have to be a fraud. But it's it's a way where we basically file a piece of paper and get some money and can be on our own. And there's this big debate about UBI. 
that I feel is, is also misguided, although it's well-intentioned, I feel it's misguided uh, the way it's being talked about. Um, the, I think we all agree that entrepreneurship has a lot of good to it, and I think the spawns, even the, the, both political parties in the US that can't agree on anything. The trouble is, though, how did we get from a situation where we had way more entrepreneurship, seemingly, at least in retrospective, and where we are now, where we have a few billion dollar companies, trillion dollar companies that seem to gobble up everything. And entrepreneurship, even in Silicon Valley, is at a relatively low level. I feel it's at the lowest level ever. And you can't institute entrepreneurship by fiat. The government can provide incentives, but these incentives are just, they're almost like cheating in my mind, because in the end, what you want is, is an individual recognizing the opportunity. Um, and you can educate, obviously that's a big deal, but how do we, how do we get this, 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 this revolution of entrepreneurship, this, this explosion? How do we actually get it going so it's, it's really improving the lives of the people who kind of have been forgotten? Yeah, well, and, and I think in our initial conversation, you actually brought up something that we both agree with fundamentally, I think it goes to this discussion is, there are two types of entrepreneurship and one type has been promoted throughout the media, which is the come up with insert generic cheesy app idea, build it with four people in the garage, get bought for a hundred million dollars by a Silicon Valley company and never work again. But I don't think that when either you or I say entrepreneurship, that's what we think of. We think of that family who, you know, built the Chinese restaurant that put their kids through college or, you know, I had a, a landlord at one point when I lived in Ohio, he ran a bolt company and, you know, it was, it employed 30, 40 people and they all made decent living wages and he made several hundred thousand dollars a year, but he would never be, you know, quote unquote rich, but it was a very meaningful business. It served a need. It filled a need. He built it from scratch. You know, I think when we say entrepreneurs, those are really the, the people that we're thinking about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's. That's kind of, I wonder if this is a generational thing. I feel like a lot of young people, they're not that interested in this career. They're like, mm, no, I'll uh, rather take some money or I'll, I'll manipulate my parents in giving me money because seemingly they have a good amount of money. You know, there has been a good amount of wealth creation that happened um, up until like 20, 30 years ago. We, we, we talked in prior podcasts about the big stagnation, which I think is becoming a bigger t theme now. A lot more people are recognizing it. And the money was real until, say, the 90s, and it's still with the generation. So a lot of young people feel like, mm, that sounds like too much work. Why don't I just go on TikTok and try my best becoming a TikTok viral star? And if not, you know, I'll go back to my parents. Yeah. And, you know, some of that, it, it's interesting because, you know, for some people that actually turns into a career that they can they can leverage for five, six, seven years. And. But I think the, the TikTok success is the same as the company who built an app and just sold it off to another company and moved on. They they miss that joy of creating that comes from it. And I think part of it, we just you used to see it celebrated in television or in media more. I think it's even more so just than entrepreneurs. If you really look at what gets celebrated in reality TV or TV shows in general now, the same thing has happened with the auto worker, the plumber, the meat cutter. You know, these used to be well-paying, middle-class jobs, generally a small business 
or, or you know, a business that employed three or four people, where people made a respectable wage and they were members of their society. But if you see TV now, the plumber is made fun of, the mechanic is, you know, often made out to be either, you know, some form of a to- toxic masculine person or just, you know, a complete moron who couldn't get through college education. And the people who are successful are all people who go to college. Well, I don't think that's the route for most people or should be. I think only 30 or 40% of the U.S. population actually go to college. So we really need to focus on something that works for the other 60 to 70% of people. Yeah. I, Dave, I, I'm totally with you. Um, I think we are two old men just lament, lamenting about uh, the horrible uh, youngsters. But, but besides that, we there's something to it that that material change and you, you we, we saw that trend when um, when coronavirus hit a lot of people took the money they got and a lot of it was unemployment benefits and mm-hmm. uh, they took it and went to robin hood and said you know this is basically a casino where i feel i know some of the brands so i have slightly better odds than if i go to vegas they put it all into amazon and apple and hope for the best and that yeah. the, the, the motivation often was seemingly, you know, obviously everyone's slightly different. The motivation was seemingly, I can't afford a house anyways in most places, you know, think about the West Coast cities. I can't, um, if, if I make an incrementally better money, like take that money and put it somewhere to use, that really won't change my life. But if I hit it big, then I could change it if I lose. You know, there's a downside protection in most West Coast cities. This, this, the, I would call it semi-socialist benefits. So if I'm really poor, that's okay too. And if I'm really rich, that's great. But in between, it really sucks. So why would I even try starting a business? Yeah. No, I, and I, and it, even not in entrepreneurship, but inside, I think companies in general, there seems to be this chasm of jobs that keeps just getting wider, where. You can realistically probably make up to forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, non-West Coast. I don't know what that looks like in the California area, but then there's this gap where there really isn't a whole lot of jobs between the the fifty thousand to the hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar range, and and to jump that chasm is very hard for many people. Yeah, and it's usually not entrepreneurship. That's kind of my suspicion, and definitely yep. now we sound like like old man, but my suspicion is there's a lot more to be gained by playing the politics games in mm-hmm. uh, big corporations by going to the right university and universities are another example you know there haven't been a ton of new universities making it big this is usually all the old universities have been around 100 years ago that are just even bigger now and they've been rolling in the high tuition and it hasn't been the online universities they're coming up but they have trouble creating the same kind of success story so far yeah. So, no, well, so the, and I, I think. Oh, mm-hmm. go ahead. I'm just the the idea of the necessity entrepreneur that I think is the world the world's road to to freedom and to richness. You can see that in in Africa a lot, and a lot of countries where the 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 public institutions are so corrupt and have been so corrupt for such a long time that. The, the only things you can really control are in the sphere of a necessity entrepreneur. You, you can't be really rich, then you will become a target. Um, you, but you can have, you kind of, the state is so, so far away from you that you basically have a lot of personal freedoms and a lot of economic freedoms. 
and this is where we see it and this is where, where it's really happening right now you, you saw that um growth in in africa that jumped five six seven percent and just that is just a registered economy there's a huge market economy that nobody ever ever sees because it's kind of hidden it's all black market so i think it happens there and it definitely happens in asia uh, maybe we are just too rich for for creating necessity entrepreneurs yeah i i think it's interesting uh i think one of the things even the people in america who who live in poverty who haven't had the opportunity to travel or the people who don't live in poverty but still haven't traveled they miss out that even our poorest people tend to live significantly better than the vast majority of the world. And so to your point, maybe that's part of it. There's a Ukrainian individual, Alex, who I met, who was an, an immigrant who came here. He's 27 now. He started a laser cutting wall art business that his store is completely on Etsy. He found this really neat niche that is Amazon's not touching him. None of the major manufacturers are touching him. He employs three or four guys and it's about a million dollar a year business. So, you know, he's he's managed to find this decent scale where he can eke out a great living. But, you know, how long will that last? How many people are capable of finding these niches? How many people are willing to go after them? You know, I it's it's really exciting when you, you find those people who have that passion to do it. Yeah, my, my friend actually, he started, I hope I can bring him on the podcast one day. He started um, selling children's clothing and he, 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 he wasn't actually into, well, he didn't have kids on, on his own. And uh, let's put it mildly, he wasn't into, the, into children's clothing. He didn't know anything about it, but he realized there's an opportunity. Margins are high. And he started um, a business just selling drop shipping, you can say, um, but also via Amazon. Um, children's clothing in Europe and um, that has taken off that uh, is two people makes easily a million dollars in revenue has healthy margins and it's the best business he's ever done he said but um, if Amazon says one day you know you're late or your, your rating dropped too much then that's it so you can be you run that risk that you mm -hmm. can be switched off by the platform and um, what we talked about that a little bit before is that if if these these big platforms like eBay, they, they, they generated this boom in entrepreneurship and on a small scale, everyone made like another hundred dollars. And um, I think Uber is a little bit like that or was like that until last year. The, the problem is that they can switch you off instantly and they kind of will. The, the day comes when they don't need you anymore. Like Uber doesn't need drivers anymore, obviously, because there's no demand anymore. But th that's true for a lot of people on YouTube. Um, it creates an opportunity and you learn something. Maybe you can use it in a different way. Most likely you can. But then you have those, this moment when the platform switches you off for good reasons, bad reasons, who knows. But often it's because that particular model that the platform wanted isn't really working out. And, or they can do it themselves better. They don't need um, independent creators or independent merchants on, in the case of Amazon. And I felt that's that's really kind of the, the feeling that a lot of lot of young people have right you you when we talk about entrepreneurship it's something that we can feel or we feel like we can control this and we can run this for 50 years say we the plumber yeah but if you run on these platforms if you have two years that's great it could be over in a month and they will never tell you what the yeah. reason was right they will just shut you off and say you can never create an account again and that creates a whole kind of anxiety and it doesn't help promote entrepreneurship in my mind. 
Yeah, it, it might give people that taste, but also it gives you that, that bitter taste, especially when defeat is not because you ran a bad business or your products didn't sell, but some person arbitrarily decided that you weren't, you no longer were a part of the in crowd or whatever metric they use to determine that you should no longer be able to operate on their platform. You know, that would be a very, you know, to your point, scary. Moving from platform businesses over to something that's more, more sustainable, one of the areas that you'd asked about is how do you break into healthcare? And right now, healthcare yeah. is going through these amazing transitions. Um, you know, right now, everything is what's called fee for service. You know, if you go, have a broken arm and your broken arm gets set, every little piece gets charged to you or your insurance. Whereas uh, everybody is trying to move to this value-based model where it's more about the outcome that matters. So if you treat 10 patients with diabetes, you would get paid the same amount for all of those patients. I, I think this it's opening up lots of opportunities for businesses to try to find, or businesses in this case, hospitals and doctor's offices, to find ways to become more efficient. Uh, one of the nice things about the medical world is Effectively, they still operate like they're in the 1990s or maybe early 2000s. So anybody who's an entrepreneur who's been around technology, you can pretty much take something that you did last year and apply it to healthcare and be an innovator, uh, yeah. which is nice. <laughs> yeah, probably something that we did five years ago. I was, I was just. This is very timely, and I, um, I want to want to stay with that topic. But this is very timely. There was the. The announcement today that DeepMind made a lot of progress um, about the uh, unfolding of proteins and apparently that's that's a big deal and has been a challenge for 50 years and they announced today that their AI has been um, very successful way more than any other um, computer um, algorithm before and I was like I was reading through through some of the deeper uh, technical analysis and I felt like whoa this is this is I mean this sounds like something we should have done a couple of years ago. Like, shouldn't that be state of the art for, for any research project? The AI use was relatively small, the data set was relatively small, um, the learning was only on only on about 100 GPUs. So it seemed like this isn't such a big deal, but apparently this, is, this was hailed at least today, and uh, this is um, in early December. If you look on Twitter, everyone says like, okay, AI is, is, finally, is finally delivering what, what it has been promised in life sciences. Yeah, and I, I find it interesting. Uh, we were having a discussion about this with some people at work today, and you know, there's it, it is interesting on one hand. You know, I I don't know that large AI platforms are really within the scale of an average startup entrepreneur, but there are definitely smaller scale things. But you know, to your point on life science, it, the vast majority of discovery is still a manual process. Literally, we pay PhD students or PhDs called postdocs to set in labs and hand pipette and look at things under microscopes that could all relatively easily be done with basic AI algorithms that are out there for image recognition. Um, there's you know, a platform called Opentronics, which is to my knowledge, the first open source lab processing equipment. They basically do liquid handling. So processing and pipetting of bloods and liquids and you know, there's lots of mixing of reagents and things that go into running these tests, and it's all performed by hand by the most part in all these academic centers because they don't have half a million dollars for an expensive robot. But Opentronics is kind of paving the way, and if you could pair that with their open source platform, 
you could do build image recognition to determine whether or not cell cultures are growing. There are tons of really low hanging fruit where a scrappy entrepreneur or a group of two or three people could come together and really build a solution that could be, you know, vastly changing the trajectory of our research and also make out a very nice business that isn't a platform and they could grow on. That's, you know, staying in the tech side of what you might be able to do in the entrepreneurship and the medical space. But can, can you explain yeah. more what, what Opentronics does? You, you were using a lot of keywords yeah. there that uh, I, I didn't understand. Um, maybe my listeners do. But, but what, what's the, the, what does it actually do? I mean, what kind of information does it store? Where does it come from? And how are the labs involved into this? Can I just go to any lab yeah. and get that information? Or uh, how, do, how, does that, how does that get into, how does this value chain work? I'm, I'm yeah. So, um, I guess first, Intronics platform do, it's, uh, if I say pipetting, do, does that translate? I want to make sure, no, I don't know which. I don't know what that okay. is. So, yeah. Okay. It so cool, <laughs> is, yeah. it, is it related to surfing? No, unfortunately, that would be a lot more entertaining. So, uh, a pipette is, if you would think of a straw that basically has a button on one end, and if you push a button, it sucks liquid up the straw. Uh-huh. Um, you'll have a plate with normally 96 really small wells. We're talking like one or two drops of liquid per well. Uh -huh. And so somebody will take a blood sample and they'll separate it into its various components. And then they'll suck up those components in this straw. And then they'll hand put a handful of drops in each one of those wells. And each of the wells will have a different set of agents or things that they want to test in them. And then okay. they'll manually put it on shake like these tables that will rock it so that a way it gets mixed well. And then put it in a machine that will, uh, for many of the cases, will do, you know, do it either via imaging or another analysis to determine what those results actually are. But the labor intensive part of that is this hand pipetting of fluids around. And the Opentronics platform um, has a standard open API and it makes it really easy for anybody with some basic programming experience to set this up and run it in their lab and get rid of that manual step. Which, wow. you know, that's that's very nice. That um, seems like something that should have been done a long time ago. I mean, isn't, isn't that a, a prime robotics um, yep. workload? Well, it, it, They're all different it, sizes. It is. Is, is that a size issue or like, like different? This, this the pipette is, is different in and for each material, for each sample? Uh, they're, no, they're fairly standardized. I mean, there are different volumes that you might do. And there have been robots for 30 or 40 years that do this. But, uh -huh. for example, in the research lab that I helped automate, we were really lucky. We had really good government funding. And the robot that would do this off the shelf, uh, sold by a company named TCAN, was a, a half a million dollar robot. And so if you're running a really tight research ship and your total funding for the year is $150,000, you're not going to have that kind of money laying around to be able to buy a robot. And plus, you're probably not going to be doing the volume of samples. Like our, our robot would process anywhere in between 200 and 1,000 blood samples a day, um, where you know most of these labs might be doing 10, 20, 30 samples a day. And so it's part of it's a scale and part of it is a cost. But most of research is happening by these hand pipetting, and it's the slow part, but since the largest cost in it is tends to be salary, discovery is done at the time that people can pipette. 
So this robot could really be game-changing for a lot of small small labs that are doing research. Yeah. And do you, is, are you required to send the sample somewhere else? Is it like a centralized no. system? Uh, no, yeah, they're, they're tabletop. They're about two and a half foot by two and a half foot by two and a half foot. Or, uh -huh. I don't know, we might as well go by a meter cubed if, if you'd rather on metric. But, yeah, they're, they're small tabletop units that would be in each lab. And so each scientist could have their own. They're, like I said, they're not terribly expensive. Or a couple labs could pool it and use it as a, a centralized resource. But uh, I think the part that's really driving, and it shows in you know our, in the tech world from really 2000s on, it's all been about interconnectivity. So you could take an, a really affordable Raspberry Pi, put a camera on it, have it capture images of, so one of the things that you do is you may put samples inside of a plate and you might want to see if, say, something grows. And this is easily detectable by your eye, you know, that it may be in, say, a, a clear or a light yellow medium that's growing this either cells or bacteria. And the bacteria itself will be a drastically different color. So that's something that's very easy to detect from AI. But if you would put that system together, now you can have it hand pipette. But the next thing that they do is one of two things. If you're trying to grow something, then in the ones that grow, you're going to want to pipette out those solutions and put it into something else and grow more of it. So you could see using like a Raspberry Pi with some open AI to detect that something's there. And instead of having a person manually inspect these 96 plates, you could just set the plate in the machine, hit a button, it gets analyzed, it picks the three that are most promising, and then would pull out the sample and then do what it takes to grow that sample out further. But right now, all of that's done by hand in most labs around the country. That's crazy. That's shocking to hear that, to be honest. And, and you always, I, I always feel like the, the idea of bioinformatics, the way that we, uh, we've enabled big data and, and mostly entertainment and the media world and in advertising, mm -hmm. If we take the same approach to to the data that's inside our bodies, it's inside what medicine already knows, it should be much easier. One thing that, that I feel like has been a barrier for a long time is that for AI, the uh, the when, when I use um, TensorFlow, for instance, or when I use Akeros, the, the usage has gotten much easier. What 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 is the trouble now? And I think millions of people can use it. TensorFlow is probably downloaded 100 million times now. And uh, what the, the trouble is, you have to find a data set that is relevant, um, has a relevant pattern inside, and isn't too big, then the computing cost scales up too much, um, but isn't too small, so you can't find any new patterns. And you, f you find those in, in some markets, like like advertising, you find those, like it's basically user behavior, you find those everywhere. You just you just track DNS um, queries, for instance, and you have tons of data to run to run your AI on. In, in the medicine field, it's hard to get to the data, right? You, you either are this patient privacy, so you're not allowed to loop into the records, so you don't exactly know what symptoms may be appeared given a certain sample. You, it's hard to get to a large sample size, say, of a million a million different blood tests done for, um, I don't know, I don't have a good example, maybe uh, lipid panels. 
and then those uh, you can compare against uh, actual onset of, uh, for instance, diabetes or heart attacks. I don't know where I could download those data sets if they exist. Uh, so some of them will exist in mm -hmm. the, the government. This and this is a spot where government can actually be useful. There's a website called clinicaltrials.gov, and effectively, if you run a clinical research protocol, at the conclusion of that trial, a, a portion of that data is supposed to be published up to this site. So you can go find trials where they've published that data, and a lot of these algorithms use some of that data for their, their basic understanding. Okay. But most of the time, it's not at the fidelity that you need to do true AI. Yeah, I mean, what, uh, what you need is like the core data, right? You can't you can't parse research papers. I mean, you can run some text analysis on it. It doesn't. That's it's not the same yeah. granularity. But you need like tons and tons of core data that isn't yeah. isn't influenced by anything on top of it. Like no human has ever seen it. Let's put it this way, or yeah. has made any sense of it. That's I think where AI is the strongest. Yeah. Well, I think the the thing that gets interesting on clinical trials is, you know, where AI is really great at finding unintended patterns and large sums of data, uh, clinical trials operates on the opposite end of the scale, which is highly refined, highly nuanced uh, ideas so that way you can get the, the end down to a small enough number that you can do it. Um, one of my, my mentors, Dr. Logothetis, is one of his great sayings is anytime you bring up big data is there's no drug on the market today that hadn't shown efficacy with 50 patients. So it, it's kind of a different way of looking at things but you know we had i worked at uh, md anderson cancer center and we had some of the largest patient populations out there but even my prostate cancer patient population was only sixty thousand, and that was representative of 25 years at the number one cancer center with the number one volume in the world um finding a bigger data set probably isn't going to happen anywhere and still it's not really at scale to do true big data now, you can get lots of really interesting stuff out of that. And there are definitely people who have done, for example, Page AI, um, which you may or may not have heard of, but they came from yep. based out of MSK. They're doing pathology off of prostate cancer slides, and they were able to train an algorithm, I believe, on 10,000 slides. So you can, yeah. you can get down to smaller numbers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's... Uh, where, did, where would they get samples from? Would they have to collect them? Would they go and like literally email doctors and say, we want to include this into the study and uh, they probably already are tagged. Um, where, where would you get those from otherwise? Yeah, uh, well, and so that was, since it was born out of a hospital, um, there was still controversy around it. They went to the head of pathology and effectively raised enough capital that they were able to buy access to the information. Yeah. And, you know, that's it's probably the little known dirty secret about medical research is, you know, one of the reasons why it gets guarded so heavily. If you look at Epic, Epic is really against this idea of the sharing of patient data. It's because anybody who interacts with their app orchard pays on a per patient data level. You know, it's, so this, you know, there's big money in having patient data and making it freely available would cut a lot of people out of a significant source of revenue. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I being being someone who, who, who loves the free market and I love pe people and companies setting their own guidelines and, and you know, defending an, a real business, I feel if we would be able, and you know, this might be utopian, 
but if we would be able to get our hands and we can we can run people through a couple of different certifications if we could get our data our hands on data dna data all kinds of symptoms um, all kinds of medical history that um, that happened over the course of a lifetime we could get really good at predicting um, not just the traits you get from 23andme but we could get really good really quickly at what our dna and the RNA and the proteins say about the actual propensity to have a, a life-changing, life-altering disease, because the technology for this is there. The, the, the only thing that's missing is the data set, and I know 23andMe is in that market. They have access to your DNA, and you, you, you provide it to them for research purposes if you want your results, but they don't have access to your medical history, and uh, the predictions they make from, from what I've seen for, for my DNA, they weren't particularly specific or interesting. I think we can do much better. Oh, for, for sure. And I think it's interesting because there's a couple a couple issues that come to mind there. Uh, first on, on data, and it, it's actually a company I've contemplated starting many times is fundamentally I, I believe patient data it belongs to the patient and they should have access to it in fidel at the same fidelity and richness that their doctors do absolutely but this opens up a really interesting potential marketplace for patients if you have a rare disease many drug companies want access to that information and there are many many billion dollar examples where drug companies have paid billions of dollars of companies to get access to this kind of data but if you would think about it in the context of a person, let's say that you were unfortunate and you got diagnosed with cancer and you're looking at, especially in America, you know, $100,000, $200,000 in medical bills, but you happen to have a variant of the cancer that medical or the oncology pharma is looking into researching, I, I've definitely seen them pay upwards of four or $5,000 a record for that information so with the right platform as a patient you may be able to sell your data and even if you use the apple model which i think less people are being friendly towards the uh the itunes store model of taking 30 percent but still let's say if it's five thousand dollars if you're an average patient thirty five hundred dollars goes a long way towards helping you make ends meet even if you have great insurance so i, I can't think believe there's that doesn't market. exist yeah i think this right. is this, this you shouldn't share that idea on the podcast it's too good um, well, no, I mean well, it sounds it sounds like something that should be should be out there. And the the idea is you know, Eric Weinstein was saying that about the um, the opening up of of the U.S. labor market. The idea was that if we allow uh, more people to come in, if, I think that happened really in the '90s and the 2000s, that would make America richer. And I think that was probably true. The the trouble is that there's a lot of people who will not benefit from this. So the, the, the people who benefit from this are very definitely other people who, who suffer from um, that change. And I think what he suggested is this, this access to the American labor market, which was exclusive to Americans and people who were legally here before that change was instituted, that is worth something and say this is worth a thousand dollars per person, five thousand dollars. I don't know what the, the value is. And I think the same I see with the patient um, records. This is something that intrinsically belongs to, to a patient and he should be able to monetize that. And um, that, that is something we should 
we should build a market on. And I think this is a much more useful market than like an artificial market, like carbon offset. That I always feel like it's very artificial and very political. If um, we get get such a data access to work, I think the, the, the incentives for sharing that data would come along. And yeah. but obviously there are practical issues, right? I don't have a lot of medical access myself um, of my own data. I always request a copy, but you get um, say I, let's go back to the lipid panel. I get like a PDF that's barely scannable, and there's like maybe sometimes there's handwritten notes on it, and that's all you get. Like you don't get access to the core data, and maybe you get access to an MRI or X-ray, but then it's like in a strange format, and the resolution is pretty shitty, and um, nobody can read it anyways, but we, we don't, so there should be a universal standard to share that data, provided to patients, maybe as a legal requirement, because it's, it's their data, and then uh, just give the hospital or whatever institution that did run the test should get a copy of that. Yeah, and I think one of the, so this is where a strength and a, a hindrance that comes from being in America is, I, I pose a question, do you think you own your medical data? And I would think I so, think but you were t you're going to tell me it, I'm not. I, I'm going to tell you it depends what state you live in. Oh, okay. In some states you own your data, in other states the hospitals own your data. Ah, I didn't know that. Well, it's is it like the frequent flyer miles? So you, you, you get a balance, but it's, it's all the airline's um, uh, property. You, you, yeah. you, you, can't, you can't actually take it somewhere else because they own Correct. it. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yes, and even in the states where you own the data you still can't take it really anywhere so effectively it doesn't matter but there is there is a difference in thinking because if you don't even own it then it's hard to it's harder to get access to it but in states where at least you own your data you could see that you would theoretically be able to say hey i i deserve a full copy of it please give it to me and that you know that should drive a lot of change it's something like a crypto wallet because I feel like a lot of people, they don't have the data for me. Like it goes down to the details. Of why do you save, I don't know, a 100 gig MRI scan? Like people just don't have the storage, right? And they would be like, oh, well, why would I need that? But if you have like a wallet, like, an, like a crypto address where this is being sent to um, and it just stays there and it's you know, distributed, you don't have to pay for storage, you don't have to worry too much about it. And everyone can access based on the access that you're, you're providing. Um, and that could actually work. But um, I, I feel like you can only make this happen if there's dollar amounts behind it, right? Nobody will really worry about it until they, they realize, oh, I could sell that data down the line maybe. Yeah, that or for people who are relatively healthy, they don't care as much. But people who end up having something chronic like cancer or another you know, lifelong life-threatening disease, they start to, not everybody, but some of those people start to care a lot more about that data because they're going to be going and seeing many different specialists and effectively they just get tired of asking for copies of their data all the time. Yeah. Um, but that's the exception. Yeah. So, you know, well, the I, rule I, would be what you said. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we, we talked about cancer research and you, you, are an expert in this. I was, I was shocked, um, a couple of years ago when my mom passed away that that didn't seem to be any research. Um, there didn't seem to be any, any path, to uh, to um, surviving that cancer even more than three or four months and uh, apparently she had late stage brain cancer and I think there's a there's a, there's a better word for this um, it's a um, a big 
um, growth of cancer that already happened in her brain. So yeah. it's something that is relatively late stage and there is obviously seemingly nothing to be done. But I was, you know, maybe still that naive. I was in that situation. You go to a doctor and you go to someone who has a, a lot of expensive equipment and they run a lot of tests and then they say, okay, maybe three months, maybe less, maybe a little more. And you feel like, uh, what? Uh, so you always feel like this should be at least a temporary solution that extends your life. Uh, there, there could be uh, a couple of different trials you could run. Maybe you just you just want it to happen. Obviously, you want this. You, you want to connect your hope with something that you can can uh, put some something tangible to it. But that didn't happen in my mother's case, and I was I was really shocked by that. That that definitely altered my worldview. And I felt like, oh my gosh, um, there's really nothing you can do. And they say, well, not that we know of. Yeah, and and this is. This is actually one of the things where uh, it may be tangential, but you know we often think of truth as truth. But when you're on that edge of science where you are actually discovering what truth is, you, you learn that determining what is true can often be very hard. Um, in figuring out how to move forward or how to solve something that has never existed before. And cancer, you know, we, we call cancer like it's a singular disease. and then we got a little better and we're like, well, cancer, it's, you know, it's, you know, unfortunately like for your mom, I don't know if it was like a glioblastoma where it was cancer specific to the brain or if it I think was. that's what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's the term they which, use. Yeah. Yep. And then, which is, I mean, that's tragic all the way around. I, I had a really good friend in college. Uh, she ended up marrying one of my best friends and she developed glioblastoma at the age of 26 and was dead before she turned 27 so it's it's one of the worst forms of cancer out there to get and you know everybody is working hard on it but it will take time thankfully there have been advances in other cancers but cancer is of all diseases should be the disease that will really benefit from access to big data and you know we, we were talking about genetic information and RNA and various you know, proteomic data, and all of those kind of tell a story. Your DNA kind of is this is what you're the risk you're born with. Your RNA is kind of the the risk that you acquired by how you lived your life, and your proteomic data or you know um, exosome data can be this is actually what's getting communicated in your body. You know, one of the things, and, you know, I didn't go to school to do clinical research. I went to school to be a software engineer and a physicist. But, you know, I found fascinating. You get a DNA report, and it's really not quite what I thought of when you got a DNA report. I thought it was like, hey, this is my DNA. It's really more like they took 10 or 20,000 cells, threw it in a blender, uh, you know, made a daiquiri, and then give you the averages of what those DNA values are. So one of the new technologies they're making now is single cell DNA, where you actually get the DNA of individual cells. And you could think of a network inside of a cancer where if you pull 10,000 cells, if DNA itself is around a 40 gigabyte file for RNA-seq data, could you imagine now you're really looking at 10,000 cells, so you're 10,000 times that data, and you have to do analysis on it. Like our, our computers just aren't there. But would it be very different though? Well, I mean, like say say you have a bunch of different cells, uh, and I understand the DNA 
expresses itself. Well, that's RNA and that's proteins. Yeah. But the DNA itself should be more or less the same between each different cell, right? No. We no. I I mean, when you get your your readout of your DNA, it's percentages that read in a specific format or in a specific setup. Uh-huh. And normally it's pretty high, you know, that you would expect that a gene across, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 cells, they may express it as like 97% of the genes were expressed this way in the sample. But that still means there's 3% that weren't. Okay. <laughs> and so, so what if you have 10,000? If yeah. you have 10,000, so you have like, I don't know, a skin cell and then you have some um, uh, saliva and. I don't know, a couple of different cells, would, would that improve? Would we get down to like a, more like 100%, 99.9? Well, so where, where you would get down to with single-cell DNA is you would at least know what the DNA in each of those cells are. Yeah. So if you would look at a biopsy, normally when you take a, a biopsy of a cancer, you're not getting 100% cancer cell. You're getting some percentage cancer, some percentage normal tissue. Sure. And you're, you really don't know... You can a pathologist can look under a slide and say, "Oh, well, this is mostly cancer," but now in the how DNA currently works, if you then take that chunk of tissue and you throw it in the blender, you don't know which of those cells are truly cancer and which ones are normal. But sure. once you move to single cell DNA, you would be able to see different populations. So let's say that like, and we don't know, but let's say that a lethal cancer is actually if you just took like prostate cancer. What if it isn't that your prostate cancer cells had this one mutation, but it's actually you need three different cell populations to set up all with one or two mutations in different orientations. Then an appropriate therapy might be blocking one or two of those combinations. It, it is truly a big data problem, and but we have to get the fidelity of the data to actually be able to look at that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we definitely have to dig deeper there and I I feel like we have all the tools now coming from from software development and it's if if we solve the data acquisition um, part I was I was really amazed and we talked about that as well is how Ray Kurzweil um, who's one of is a very famous book author um, a futurist who's been writing about the future um, his whole life and uh, is now in his 70s and He's, uh, he's been predicting a major step up in how technology operates on, uh, he says, nanotechnology on a level that is, uh, it could be inside our brain, it could be inside our bloodstream. So something that isn't quite down on the molecular level yet, uh, but is just one, one um, scale bigger than this. And those are tiny robots that can fix cells that are not working the way they should be. Um, they could um, replace a bunch of organs and could just be little robots that uh, kind of do the same thing that um, body B functions um, currently operate in. It could replace our blood cells, red blood cells, or white blood cells. Uh, do you see that happening in the next 10 years? Because he was pretty specific this is going to happen in 2030, and then it's going to go into this big singularity 10, 15 years later. Yeah. So, and not my, my specific area that I, I do a lot of research on, but it, it is fascinating. We are getting machines that are on the scale that they're injectable. So, the, the potential exists for it. And, I mean, I think the, you know, the specific 
nanotech has existed in sci-fi sci at least for 60 years i think the interesting thing is is 10 years i i don't know if that's true he's been right about a lot of predictions so if he's really confident on it i would go with it but what i say within our lifetime and uh, you know you cited that we're, we're old men but i'm I'm only forty, so I hope to be around for at least twice as long as I am that, now. That puts I, you into the old category. If I if I ask my my kids, uh, they're teenagers. They feel like every, everyone beyond thirty is like from the Stone Age. So oh yeah, yep for sure. We have to accept um, that. We, we're like dinosaurs now. Yep, yeah, and we don't know anything, so it's okay. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I would say that within our lifetime, we should expect to see those kind of technologies exist. Yeah, I think it would make. When, a, a big difference having just having the understanding you know i call this the imaging problem we we, we gotta figure out what actually goes on in our bodies and why and i think i i, I there's this huge respect that the general population has for doctors especially or for medical staff and they feel like they're, they're godsend and they, they they come down with the, with the uh, treatment and then you're going to be fine I always feel 90% of the treatments, y you would have ended there anyways um, with what the body does in self-healing. Maybe my percentage is off, but I feel like the not just the placebo effect, but there's a lot of um, things that our body takes care of. And we, we there's good technology and there's good intentions, but I feel like medical science is still a little bit like a, like a witch doctor to me. We don't know if this pill will work on you. We don't know if we do the surgery, how it will end up for you. We have no idea where this cancer came from. We don't know anything, but we all can cut the open and hope for the best. And uh, if you don't want us to do it, that's fine too. But then statistically, your chances are that much lower that you will have serious side effects or will die from it. I feel that's, if, if you're a software engineer and you would, you, would, you would be like this and you say, work at Google, you wouldn't make it very long. Like with, with this low hit rate and this much of a self-healing concept that's already doing it anyways, you wouldn't really be required. I always feel like doctors have this high esteem in culture, but given the error rate, we should look at medicine quite differently. Uh, yeah, so a couple thoughts that come off that. One, I agree. If you were to go, if you would go back to the 70s and you look at the error rates that existed in healthcare and airline industries, they're actually very similar back then. And, you know, you heard about a fair amount of plane crashes back then, too. The difference being is the airline industry took the initiative to improve their quality and improve their standards and learn from all of the mistakes. And now hear, hearing of an airplane accident is almost unheard of. And But if you come to the medical world, the same level of mistakes that were made in the 70s are the ones that were made now if not more so because it's just becoming that much more complex to treat people. Yeah. Um, the other part that I wanted to comment on there is, you know, when you think of medicine, we often say cure when you take a pill, but if you have to take a pill the rest of your life, it's not actually a cure. It's just preventing a side effect in effect, right? Like, if you have high blood pressure and you're taking a blood pressure medicine for the rest of your life, the side effect that you have for an unhealthy life is high blood pressure. And so the pill is just mitigating that side effect, but it's not actually curing the underlying problem. 
Yeah, and I always struggle with this notion that nobody knows if it works for you. Like the, there is a general prediction that we've done this trial, maybe on people with very different DNA. That's that's usually not disclosed in the trials. Nobody knows, so there might be ginormous differences between your personal DNA and what what the trial was about. And the trial might have been twenty years ago, and we always prescribe it, and then we hope for the best. And then you come back in like a month, and if you're still alive, then we do another test. This is. You know, it's like you, you sell TVs and you're like, you say, oh, we sell you this TV and it might work or not. If it doesn't work, then just give it 30 days and uh, just bring it back. Um, and this wouldn't just happen like once in a thousand. That would happen like, no, 50% of them, it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, yeah. we should improve that error rate. But I feel the approach that medicine has taken so far is, is that of a witch doctor, not that of a data scientist. Yeah, well, and I mean... It, you got to also be fair if you you would come back and you would say for example insulin in people who have diabetes there is no doubt that the vast majority of people who take insulin who are diabetic live significantly longer because insulin exists yeah. there is no doubt when it's acute if you're a surgeon and somebody's appendix ruptured they would have died if you didn't go in and fix the problem you know so especially when it comes to surgery when they repair something like for example cardiac bypasses that that person would have been dead they are alive so there are certain situations but you know there there is this certainty to your point that it isn't there and especially the more rare and more acute a disease gets the less knowledge exists around it and that and that's where it starts to become far closer to witch doctoring than anything that resembles what we would consider medicine yeah well i i guess like if if we have a more data-driven approach then the imaging would would improve rather quickly once that that does we have therapies that can either that are individualized um and they are specific to one's express dna or dna um, or state of of that that particular um, uh, tissue or that particular organ we can introduce those and then if we have the the the, the tiny little machines this would this would give medicine a whole different success factor so success factor could go up to 90 and there's a lot of aging research um that seems to be coming online now and people are very confident um if you listen to them that we can not just stop aging and we feel like oh we can we can just freeze someone but we can go back to any point of our lifetime more or less we can say oh we're going to be like a 28 year old and then we can not just use external mechanisms, but we can use the mechanisms that the body already has and keep you at that stage of a 28-year-old healthy if you're not you know, a crazy person smoking and drinking. But this, this doesn't seem like science fiction anymore. That seems like oh, we're going to have that in the next 10 years from the people I listen to. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, people are, do generally a poor job on estimating time frames, but at least from the fundamentals. Um, so I, I worked with a gentleman who I believe when he found, did the research was at Harvard. It was just coincidental that it, he happened to do the research. I've also been very interested in the anti-aging or reverse aging, but in a mouse model was able to genetically engineer a mouse that when given an appropriate chemical, they could just basically reverse, to your point, the growth of a mouse back. There was a finite stopping, kind of stopped for, if you would translate it to human years, to somewhere between being in between 25 and 30. But 
you know that that's not if you would have asked somebody in the 90s if that was possible it would have been science fiction and it's it's working in labs now so the fundamental research is being done and it will eventually be a reality the the timing i don't know about but the reality will come which is kind of fascinating well if that happens this is this is a massive opportunity it's like the internet right if not bigger it it changes everything it's it's you know i i did my 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 growing years i've I've been an entrepreneur since i was in seventh grade uh, or sixth grade um i i had my first venture during the internet years and for people it's hard to understand now what kind of um because we have it every day and we use it and it's cheap it's almost free but the idea that you can access knowledge in any way you want instantly was like a never heard of life-changing experience in the early 90s although some research scientists had it for 20 years and i feel the same would be true would not just the same it would be such a big revolution if you say oh why don't we just inject you with this dosage and um then you're never going to age again i i wonder this this is going to i mean just not just society changing this is going to be the end of society as we know it yeah uh you know we we definitely still have an issue with overpopulation and and people still are dying so uh that's only going to get significantly worse if people basically live forever um audrey de gray who's one of one of the in my mind the leading scientists in that area estimates just by statistical probability of randomness if you weren't going to die from biological causes you'd probably be in some accident that would kill you every 3500 years so okay i'll take that i'll take that (laughs) so so would i but still if you would think about that becoming the new age span like what does that it almost mandates that we would have to have space travel exploration because there's you know all of our advancement has happened in the past 500 years and we that that advancement has already made it so that it's not sustainable for us to be how we are now yeah i mean there's one thing that i i always feel is important is people expire um, i mean they die is for a reason because they weren't useful from for evolution and evolution it can be uh, we can replace evolution by just becoming smarter so it's it's hard to find 40 year olds who are still having the mindset of a teenager they they generally some do but generally they've learned a lot of life lessons and core i mean just time they had to look at their screen and be influenced by real knowledge uh, or real facts or at least some facts let's put it this way um that kind of replaces evolution because our mind is being altered and changed and improved over the course of a lifetime and those minds have gotten a lot of upgrades um, at, at least from technology in the last 30 40 50 years so that kind of seems to uh, we we are logically at that point where i feel the extension of our lifespan is something that kind of necessarily has to happen and, uh, and that will also reduce the birth rate right the birth rates everywhere people have have choices and they know they're going to live long they instantly have less kids it happens like instantly is once you have birth control and uh, you reach a certain level of uh, of income the birth rates just just drop out of the sky they just all go to 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 minus to to a negative rate which where we are at now so if we wouldn't acquire this technology i think it would be the end of humanity relatively soon 
No, at, at least you know, at, as we as we know it, and I, and I think that's you know a really fascinating point about you know birth rates because it's not so much that we're going to live longer, but it really comes down to a matter of the quality of life that we live. So if you really look, birth rates tend to fall as quality of life goes up. Uh, yeah. It may be a, another plug for entrepreneurism and it's saving the world, but effectively, if you can have a higher quality of life, which tends to mean you also have lower infant mortality and you have other creature comforts, then you feel you have to have less children to be able to be successful. Well, one thing that occurred to me is also you feel like, and we are hitting this now with this big stagnation, when you have children, you want them to have a good future. You think there is going to be a space for your children in the future. So, and obviously, as more children you think will die, or people around you will die from diseases or from, from, from unnatural events, you feel like, oh, your children will have a pretty bright future because they're going to be around when nobody else is around. So I think there's, there's a feeling that parents have about this. And what, what I think happens once you acquire a certain amount of wealth, and we've only we've seen in the last 50 years, is the first time ever, that these birth rates drop so much, is because parents somehow instinctively feel there isn't going to be a space for their children anymore. And uh, we see this a bit now with the, with the boomers as having accumulated that wealth um, in the 70s and 80s, 60s. But since then, not a lot of wealth has been accumulated. And you, it, it goes along strikingly with another drop in birth rate. Like Japan had a crazy low birth rate. And the GDP growth just didn't happen. And you could say, oh, it is because they don't have people. But it also per capita doesn't grow anymore, yeah. which, which is really odd, right? It seems, it seems people have an idea about the future instinctively that they know how many children they should have because maybe there's really nothing to do for their children as sad, as sad as this sounds because there's other people around and these old people are much more efficient so we don't it takes much longer to mature to that state and become useful to society yeah yeah no i i mean i i think there's also you know that correlation that goes along with education and you know the it tends to be uh, i don't know if you've ever read the book the bell curve controversial for many many reasons but one of the ones that i don't think was very controversial was that oh, I, think, I think it, i think I, I heard isn't that the one that uh, does iq tests between the races yeah yeah, yeah it, which is ironic it was like the smallest segment of the book but it's the only one that most yeah. people cite um because it was the one that was controversial but the one that didn't end up being so controversial was number of children had by people grouped by iq and as IQ went up, the number of children drastically went down. So I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Idiocracy, but effectively that book was the basis for part of that movie. Yeah. But since uh, what the average IQ seems still to be rising, I think that was the theme of that mm -hmm. book as well, right? So the, the, the IQ tests have to be adjusted every year. So the yep. average goes to this artificial 100 and uh, this has been going on i don't know since these tests were introduced and it's it's really strange phenomena yeah yeah you, well yeah because it, it it's a it's a distribution right it's not a it's not like if you have an iq of 100 it's you're some magic fixed in stone it's compared to everybody who took the test you fall about here and 100 being average but the questions so, have to get harder by like one or two percent yeah. every year so to speak yeah 
Yeah, so you, you're saying because we have better education or it's because the IQ is rising in the population? That, that part I, I didn't understand. Yeah, and I would have, I, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert in any means by those tests, but it, it depends what aspects of it. But some of it, when it comes to knowledge, I think, you know, undoubtedly, uh, I, I recently joined a, a school board for a charter school and I was amazed what kindergartens, kindergartners do in kindergarten now because, uh, like, I seem to remember trying to color within the lines and they're explaining how to do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, so um, as we learn how to educate better, I could definitely see that being a true statement. I, we, we are just making smarter people. Yeah. Yeah. But the common sense has gone away. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if we can fix that, but it seems to be an entrepreneurial skill because you you got to be able to to take something concrete, make it more abstract, and then in, extrapolate it into the future and make it concrete again. Um, say you 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 see all these phones, and I had a Linux phone in, in 2005, and I thought it was awesome, and it had like a little uh, pen and touchscreen display, and at the time that was that was totally novel, and I felt like oh this is really cool, and then. Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007, I think it was was the year, and you, you feel like this, everyone could have come up with this um, if they only spent enough time with it and had the resources, but it still takes a lot of, it was, it was hard to put these things all together to make it like apps and all of these, these paradigms that we now know, they were completely unknown at the time, and uh, you had to make it user-friendly and get the Wi-Fi to work at the same time when you have um, a cell phone connection, which was a big deal at the time, and these, all these things, I feel y you need to have knowledge from different sor different sources. So it's it's a good idea to be a polymath. It's good idea to have a good idea of common sense because then you can extrapolate what people might like in the future, and you can answer why they might like it. And Going back to the younger generation, I feel this is a big challenge for them. They they're very specialized, and they, they you see this with, with people under eighteen. They have, they're very verbal. They have very good way to express themselves. They they they're almost like all ready for TV. And you're like, oh my gosh, you, you they should all be an American Idol. But do you ask them to I don't know fix the fridge or adjust the fridge to a lower setting, and they will be like, uh, I don't know, I, I've never heard of that. Like they, they can't figure it out and they can't find a way to, to get the setting. So there's this common sense of using something to learn something else and applying it to a new area in a, in a useful manner relatively quickly, that seems to be gone away from, it's not a skill that people need anymore so they don't develop it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I don't remember the title of the book that I read, uh, just finished reading, but it was on innovation and it was an interesting discussion around effectively everything that we have is either bent blended or uh, broken from other abstract pieces of different technologies but to your point on that the, the one thing that i thought was interesting was they dedicated a whole chapter to art and the vast majority of the book was learning as an example through art and then how that got applied into technology and business and i think as we try to compete on a global scale we focused on the ability to do arithmetic in the, the uh, STEM classes, but really it's one thing to be able to draw the perfect line or calculate an equation or do any of those things. It's a whole other thing to be able to assemble something from nothing and come up with new creative ideas. And at least in, in this book, their argument is most people learn that skill through exposure to art. 
and that one of the deficits that we're facing now is that we've really removed art from a large portion of you know people's education that's an interesting take i never thought about that but that's that's absolutely true art is is kind of the idea you know the idea the artists I've I've seen in my life, they always ask for inspiration, and then I feel like, oh, you just copy this, and they say, no, that's inspiration. It's I, I use different things that I've seen somewhere else, but I remix them and and create something new out of it, which might be a random combination, but it makes sense in my mind. It is a picture, a mental picture of what I have, and and true, that's that's not a skill that's that's being being held up at all. Yeah, and that the the part of why art makes that an okay vessel to learn innovation is unlike other spaces art is an okay place to fail yeah true right like you know there if you you make a bad drawing you know it's not like the end of the world but if you were building a bridge and it collapses you know that's that's not a place where not you're so going to be rewarding yeah. and I, unless you're I in think, california then that's okay <laughs> yeah don't worry about it um but i I think that, you know, to your point on entrepreneurs, part of why we have that common sense is at the end of the day, maybe more so than anyone else, we tend to own the beginning, the middle and the end of the entire process. And if our idea is bad, we see it's bad because we can't sell it. We can't make it work. We can't figure it out. And so we have to go back and iterate on that idea or that product until we really find out what somebody wants. If, if you can't do that, then you're, you're not going to make it as an entrepreneur. It's true. It's true. I, I remember I, I've had this company uh, about 15 years ago, and we had two, maybe three parts of the office. One was salespeople, uh, marketing, and the customer service. So they, they all kind of, they could talk to each other, and they had a common language. And um, they had even had some tech knowledge at the time. Then we had another department, obviously, that was technology development. They had their own language. They were very happy with each other, but they would never cross to the other side. It was like the Rubicon. Um, so they would, would never go on the wrong side of the office. They would, didn't want to mingle with the salespeople. And then we had a third part, and those were the artists um, that mostly did website design and uh, worked in graphics. And they also had their own language, and they, they could talk to some extent to the developers on a very superficial level. And they could also do this with, with the salespeople. So they were the only ones who could bridge between those two worlds, which was software development, which was hardcore technology, and for sales, which was very unstructured, it was the, the voice of the customer. They were in between, and they were able to, to bridge this sometimes. Um, they could go from one world to another, and they wouldn't lose their mind. I always found that really fascinating. Hmm. And I think, you know, that it actually becomes very applicable anywhere in the world and whether you're an entrepreneur or inside of a company, that really the, the people who make it aren't the people who are the best at one thing. It's the people who are pretty good at at least two things. And it's that it seems to be at that intersection where innovation and value get generated. Yeah. Well, the I think there's a, there's a problem to, I, I fully agree with you there. The problem, though, is there's so many things you could, you could entertain your mind with. 20, Fifteen years ago, it was a big deal that all the MIT courses would show up online, but now you can literally um, you can uh, listen to Jordan Peterson and um, to all the psychology lectures, and maybe then you know as much as many 
psychology bachelors. Uh, you could do the same thing with, with pretty much politics. Um, I listened to, to the, um, uh, a lot of Middle Ages history uh, lessons. I, I, then I ran into this rabbit hole and uh, only listened to Old Testament uh, uh, courses for a while. What I'm trying to say is there's so much stuff online that you can have hundreds, thousands of things you could become an expert in, so to speak. You're not a real expert, but you, you know a little bit about it and you find it really fascinating. But there's very limited time, um, and it's even harder to, if, if, if you start out, to, to extract real knowledge out of it because you don't know what's relevant, you don't know what's important. So all of this knowledge is just coming onto you, and you, you feel like, if I'm going to be a polymath, I'm going to go crazy because there's just too much knowledge out there, and it all, I can't decipher what is important and what is not. And that seems to be a problem for young people, right? Because they start out with, with kind of, and I always feel like when we, we look at Twitter and we look at Instagram, we basically look at it from an unprotected way. We're not protected by our own AI. We basically, we just, the AI is just flashing things at us. We are like helpless little, little lizards. And if we would have some, something that helps us make those decisions and kind of guides us along, kind of like the university used to be, um, but now they, they, they literally are out of scope with all that knowledge. I think that's what, what entrepreneurs, or young entrepreneurs need. They need that, that guiding way and that might be another person or that might be an, another AI that guides them along so they don't lose track in all these things they become an expert in, but they're actually not an expert because they listen. Like Literally my kids think they watch a YouTube video of 10 minutes and they're an expert into surfing. I'm like, um, that's not how it works. Uh, was it, it, is it Mark Twain who said with uh, ignorance and confidence, com it, success is sure to follow? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, it, it is true for entrepreneurs, right? Like, I, you have to have some willingness and a high level of failure tolerance to say, I know enough about this that I think I can make a difference. But I think we could all agree that if we look back and said, man, when I started this, I actually knew nothing. And being an entrepreneur, if anything else, is who can learn the fastest about what actually matters. Yeah, and applying it. Yeah, and, and you know, to your to your AI question, this is something uh, I I now take my daughter for a walk every day for an hour and listen to a podcast on something. But this whole idea of information overload keeps coming up, and I have this thought that you know what we really need or would be really cool is an AI where it can evaluate what you see in your Facebook stream and your Twitter feed and your LinkedIn feed, and then you could say, well, but. You know, actually, I really want to understand more what it's like to be this person. And then you pick a person and it would analyze the content that they get delivered and then provide you a pathway to allow you to comfortably move into something that you don't know. That is that is cool. I mean, I definitely feel we need like a protective AI to be exposed to all the other AIs on the Internet. And once we have that, it also it's like an the, the problem with the AI is that it, that it changes our perception so effectively. And uh, maybe that's not the intended effect. I think it is a little bit because then we become more perceptive to the advertising. And um, we, we need a way to, uh, to share what, other, as you said, that other peoples have seen. Like we, it's kind of an empathy, like an AI empathy. We, we, we kind of have to see that mental picture based on that prior information what that person might have seen, would we make the same judgment or would our judgment be very different? 
And if we can, you know, take shortcuts and, and getting that learning and, and being able to see that, that will be a wonderful, wonderful thing to apply in AI for. I don't think there is anything good right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the other area that I, I just musings on AI is everybody is all happy with chatbots, but what would actually be interesting is chat conversations. Like right now, if let's say me and you were talking and we had a chatbot that was hanging out in the background and, you know, for, you know, Apple people, we, we can call it Siri, but it'd be great if we were talking and we're like, well, and Siri, you know, so how long was this thing? And Siri would interject as if it was fluid part of the conversation with more than one entity. Yeah. Yeah, um, that that would be cool. I think there is um, a one thing that comes to mind too is that these the the chatbots right now they are crazy security risks. So you you mm -hmm. can actually have a conversation with them, and then they tell you like the insights of that database because they can have access to that system. Because they they, yeah. they don't they don't know if what's relevant and what's irrelevant. They that is a problem for AI though. They don't have the the relevance decision is not. They're not strong yet in figuring out what's what's relevant. They can see the pattern, but they they can if they see many different patterns, they have trouble figuring out what's the most relevant in those. And I mean, they they probably give you a, a, a top down list. They probably can give you a top twenty. Or yeah, there there was a a gentleman who wrote this really cool AI project. You could feed it any musician's music. And, and he focused specifically on classical music. So let's say you, you fed it all the works of Mozart. He would then, the AI would learn how Mozart composed and could then make more Mozart. Oh, that's and cool. <laughs> would it also teach you if you would uh, want to do it yourself? I, I don't, well, no, because it's AI and generally AI ends up being black box right now. Yeah. But uh, the dilemma was, is there was a company that was absolutely fascinated by it and but they asked the question well what is the best one because that's the one we want to put on the cd first yeah well, well I, I don't know nobody's listened to any of them so it'd be because at some point an opinion has to be formed technically they're all identical and they all or not identical but they they follow in a pattern and they are of equal quality but it's still missing that element of is it good yeah, I think that's that's where it's lacking. Maybe that's going to happen soon. That this is this is something that AI develops um, an intuition. They say the the model that they trained for Go and for chess that um, I think AlphaGo that Google trained it developed this intuition. So people who would observe it in in their game that it played it it felt like it has an intuition. It couldn't express it, but they everyone who observed it would say, oh. It has an intuition how to play this game. It's not obviously not brute forcing it, and um, now that it has a trained model. It did this for during the training, but now it feels like intuition. And intuition is come something like magical, like consciousness. All these things we can't really define. And we're like, oh, it's intuition. We 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 know when we see it, but we, we don't really we can't define it. Yeah, it, it well, it's, and it's interesting. I I have to believe. Well, I I know for a fact that we have AI that meets Turing's definition of the Turing test. And that to be to have a conversation with it and you not know that it's a computer. I just researched that today before our conversation uh, because a lot of people said that's like what DeepMind did today. That's like another Turing test, um, the, the protein folding. Okay. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, as proof to that, uh, and I don't know if you've ran across this, but Google on some, re- uh, Google now, you can just like click make me a reservation. And I had assumed that what was happening was, you know, that restaurant they had signed up or it interacted with Open Table or something and just made me a reservation. But uh, the restaurant that I went to, this was obviously pre-COVID, said, well, hey, you know, you didn't sound like the person who called. And I was like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, yeah, we got a call, you know, asking to make a reservation for your party of four. And so the Google is using their chat to place phone calls and make voice-based requests to get people to make reservations. And they didn't catch it? Like they fell for it? And they didn't catch it. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, in in my mind, that is the heart of the Turing test. It is. (laughs) It is. That's that's another way, right? I mean, there's just like some philosophical debate, right? You could have with that machine. And uh, they feel GPT-3 is that way, but they also say it has no... It has no soul. It, it yeah. is, there's nobody, nobody's home. Like you feel like uh, eventually that this is a computer, even if you can't really say if it's just a person who is like has no empathy or not a lot of self confidence. It's it's like nobody's home. Well, that's strange. I think it's a fixable issue. I, I don't I don't feel this is something that we won't see in, in mm. the next ten years. Yeah. I, well, and I still don't. You know, to Kirk Swile's point, I still don't think that we broke the singularity right like we oh, don't have yeah. 2045 he was very specific yeah. Yeah. so it's impossible he's, he didn't predict yeah. that he, he's yeah. been so he's been so smart and now that intel i find that so fascinating because he's using the doubling of the cpu speeds or transistor and uh, that's the moore's law as a, as a main predictive guideline that's been holding true but yeah. then intel is kind of it hasn't made as much process uh, progress and um, the uh, because they've simply approached the physical limits of the the chip design and then they had more cores but they kind of didn't really adhere to Moore's law and now we saw a- Apple just um, boosting performance with a new chip like I don't know three four times for the same price and I'm like whoa Moore's Moore's law is back yeah yeah it, it is interesting that we're we're on the boundary of Moore's law and we had a, a decent discussion about healthcare and, and maybe that would be of interest i forget the gentleman but he made another law so moore's law basically says you can double the transistors at half the price every 18 months give or take and there's another person who says that actually anything you can digitize will eventually fall onto moore's law's curve Uh um in healthcare the amount of information is doubling every nine months instead of every 18 months so even if Moore's Law holds true healthcare right now will outstrip computer power just by the nature of its growth factor wow because Moore's Law is not fast enough okay (laughs) interesting (laughs) but do you think it's isn't that just a because we're ramping up so much in the healthcare sector that we get like this, this big jumps in data and it's uh, much shorter than the 18 month. Do you, don't you think it will yeah. eventually concur with the 18 month? Uh, I, I, I don't know that we're anywhere close, but I mean, for example, in the discussion we talked about actually doing single cell DNA on 10,000 cells, I, that is well over Moore's law and that, that's happening. Um, so there was so much unknown 
we're taking the tools that we learned in big data and we're applying it to biology and discovering that biology is pretty remarkable in its ability to do parallel processing and things that we, uh, we often you know consider underrated what it actually does. Yeah. I think we're going to learn from that. Um, there's one more thing that's well, I really wanted to, to ask you is we, we've been going into this COVID debate and uh, the testing debate with the PCRs and I found it difficult to fully understand the, the debate that's going on and we, we're recording this in December and we've just been like a month or a bit more than a month into the second wave in the United States in terms of COVID infections and there's a lot of people and I'm as confused as everyone else I feel a lot of people on Twitter go on and say oh what actually we are we are picking up is not the second wave because we have a second wave in, in cases but we don't have a second wave in in uh, actual hospitalizations they are increasing but not at the same rate and what we're actually picking up is old rna or something cells that are being detected that are actually from a much older infection so the people that are getting tested now and they might have mild symptoms, they come from anything, could be the flu, could be from a cold, could be they have no symptoms. They go and have a test, it's a PCR test. And what it does, it multiplies a piece of, I think it's RNA, you have to explain it to us. And then it multiplies that astronomically. And by doing this, it makes it visible. And then we look at it and say, oh, we can see COVID. So you, you had COVID or you have COVID. Um, but weirdly enough, the there's something called a cycle threshold and that kind of blurs the picture because if you set it high enough literally you can find COVID on anything like and, and someone who even had a very remote exposure to COVID years ago yeah you have well, to help me understand that is that correct or is it all uh, nonsense what i just said no i i mean you know if from what i would be able to describe here without a significantly longer discussion that's not far from the truth so there is definitely an amplification. And if you're amplifying something, you know, a couple hundred thousand times, you know, one or two strands can be really bad. Uh, my own personal, because I, you know, I don't know the real answer to this, but thoughts that go with it, is the test we use to de detect COVID, it isn't actually all that uh, precise. And I think Elon Musk sent out a tweet maybe two or three weeks ago he took four covid tests two came back positive two came back negative yeah so does he have covid or not um so if the tests are picking up and they're not specific and they were kind of developed relatively quickly but if they're let's say that you're just a normal coronavirus you're not specifically the covid19 maybe you're close enough that you're still getting amplified and look like a COVID positive. Maybe there's other viruses that are once again close enough that are getting amplified and it looks like a positive. So that's that's one aspect. Um, to your fundamental question, are we experiencing a wave? I Hospitals are definitely getting overwhelmed again. Um, to me, cases positive aren't really what your measure is and you learn this in cancer because uh, just as a, a comparison in the early 90s psa screening for males came up and basically 
They said, oh my God, if you have a PSA above two, because we set that as the threshold, you have prostate cancer, you need to get a prostatectomy. Woohoo, look at, look at what we're doing. And so all of a sudden there was this big spike in the amount of prostate cancer. Well, it wasn't a real spike in prostate cancer. It's just the testing now brought it to light. And yeah. so where that got relevant is we actually over-treated based on that, which was bad for patients with prostate cancer. Um, but if you looked at it, the deaths stayed pretty constant. And because what two things happened, they removed a lot of people's prostates, but the same approximately the same number of people were dying every year still. So basically all of those people who had prostatectomies had unnecessary surgery because it ends up that prostate cancer for something like 80 to 85 percent of the people who will get it ends up not being lethal. It's just, uh, you know, it gets detected. And the same thing I think we're also seeing to draw back to COVID is we really don't know because the disease is new how lethal the disease really is. And so we're learning as we go. And it's actually, you know, from a learning about how science learns uh, works perspective, COVID has been really enlightening, but it also has brought to light lots of times that, you know, science is all about changing and going with the best answer that's there today you know, for example, we can take the mask debate, which, you know, you, you can argue people, you hear people argue about it still, and it's because fundamentally the research hasn't been done. You know, Denmark just released a study that it basically is being used by people who don't believe in masks to say, oh, look, masks don't work. And in their study, they evaluated it in a population of people where not everybody was wearing a mask, and there was something like a 15% reduction in the likelihood of getting COVID if you wore a mask in an environment where not everybody was wearing a mask. So that would be protecting you from COVID. And 15%, some people might say that's good. Some people might say that's bad. You know, the, the study effectively called it a wash. But, you know, the going hypothesis on masks is, is that actually they're more effective at preventing COVID spread if you have the asymptomatic version, preventing you from giving it to other people that study hasn't been done, but that's once that's out, then we would have a definitive answer. Does masks make a difference or I not? I think there was a Chinese study, um, a couple, I think it was only like a week ago, and there was a Chinese <laughs> study that I don't know, you know how much we want to trust Chinese data, but uh, there was at least one and they were focused on, um, they do a lot of uh, tests, uh, the tests are really cheap there. Um, yeah. so they, they do mass testing a lot and it's uh, mandatory. So, which is weird, but and I don't think it would fly in the U.S., but they have these $10 or $5 tests, and you have to show up, and then the whole city gets tested. So, they had um, they followed um, asymptomatic spread, uh, where they knew these people had COVID, but had no symptoms, and then they traced um, whoever they were in touch with, and they contacted them every week or every five days. I don't know what the cycle was, and it was a relatively big population, and they from that study they said there's no real spread from asymptomatic carriers but yeah. masks are somewhat enforced in in china especially if you're not tested recently so um and the the, the testing itself if if you don't have symptoms um you shouldn't be you shouldn't be i think the idea of of, of creating this panic with, with cases that are asymptomatic is a little silly um, we, we should focus on, on real infections that at least give you, uh, you don't have to go to a hospital, but you feel unwell for a certain yeah. amount of time. 
that would be the case for for would be a real case to me and um, those numbers are seemingly much slower much lower fortunately and uh, i was personally very concerned about covid you know when i first set on um, my grandmother actually died from COVID back in January, and I didn't know what it was. Nobody knew it was just a mysterious case of um, of viral infections of pneumonia that uh, was apparently going on in Italy since November, and so it must have gone come to Italy much much earlier than most people thought. Uh, at least it was in Europe in by the time, and um, but there were no tests done, so all the symptoms looked like COVID. But who knows? It could have been just pneumonia. But apparently yeah. it, it was pretty widespread in, in the different nursing homes. And uh, I was really concerned that this is something that could have a major impact. And I think panicked as much as everyone else. But I felt like by May, we were like fortunately over this first hump and seeing a lot of infections happened um, with symptoms or none. And the mortality rate is extremely low. Like it's still higher than the flu, but it's for, for what we thought in my mind, like like a like an Ebola that you could get by just yeah. being around other people that might have and don't even know it. Um, that fortunately hasn't happened for most people. Again, yeah. if you're 100 years old, like my grandma was, that wasn't an option for you. But yeah. it was extremely dangerous and is extremely dangerous. But um, that's very fortunate. I think this somehow has escaped, maybe that's all politics, this has escaped the mind of the public quite a bit. That. Yeah what we prepared and thought it is in april and may and or march and i was i was as much in uh influencing everyone around me that this is extremely dangerous that actually didn't happen the worst case scenario which is lucky i guess it yeah. could have but this message has never made it out i felt like this is, is people went into masks and they went all kinds of psychological crutches but they they never got back to okay what is actually happening and is that a danger to us yeah no I, it's i don't think so we know a lot more now, and I, the news media has not helped this at all. They keep, you know, pumping on the fear. But, you know, it really is a tale of two diseases, and even more so when you start subdividing by various races. But, you know, if you, you look at the stats, you know, I, in our age group, we have, if we got COVID, we have like a 1 in 5,000 chance of dying of COVID, which, you know, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with those odds. But you move up to anybody over the age of 70, and it's like 1 in 18 people who get it die. And yeah. then you move into the African-American population, where they're two times more likely to die than somebody who is an African-American. Now, if you get to like 1 in 9 chances of dying if you get COVID, that starts to be a scary disease for certain populations. But for the vast majority of the people under 50, it's, it's not even a, a starter. Yeah. So... You know, I, I calculated my, my risk of death. You know, I went into the XRM tables a couple of years ago. Yeah. And uh, it's about, if I'm not, because I'm relatively healthy, or I think I'm pretty healthy, um, somewhere around 1% for me right now. But it goes up yeah. quite a bit. I'm just at that phase where it really jumps up. And uh, it just goes by age, and it doesn't look into anything else that these XRM tables. But when I looked into the, uh, the COVID death rates, it only adds about 5% year as you say to my my death rate and i'm like okay five percent that's like five percent of one percent it's a really small number and i go to mm -hmm. a lot of dangerous places you know I, I go to pretty much every country um on the planet and some of them are dangerous just by diseases they're dangerous by just because the government isn't great or because the government is just not existent and uh, everyone can basically do it to land what they want is to anarchy and i felt like 
the addition of 5% on top of 1%, I don't have to worry yeah. about that. Yeah. No, and, and that is, to me, the saddest thing that got lost in this entire thing is, you know, one half of the country has completely demonized the other half, and not just of the country, but of the world. You either took it seriously and or you didn't in whichever side you were on tended to demonize the other side instead of saying we're all adults we can all make responsible decisions for ourselves and what we feel is best yeah there isn't i mean since common sense is so 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 hard to find these days i've i always felt like i mean in the end the virus doesn't care right the virus just does what the virus does nobody nobody can do much about it and um or maybe we could do things about it but but coming down with the idea of like let's stop everyone's lives right now which is i think what we should do when there's ebola out there and it's airborne is really weird when we when we see these well it's basically not not a thing from everyone under 70. so that's yeah. that really struck me as i was not prepared for this that it um that it would go down this way but yeah maybe just me no. other people might have seen that coming uh, no, I no, I'm with you. Or, and somebody might have seen it coming, but I was I was fairly surprised by the reaction and how things have played out. Yeah, I was I was having like this this N95 mask and like gloves on, and when I was flying in, in March, and nobody had a mask and nobody was allowed to wear a mask, and I'm like, oh, this is going to get really bad, and people don't understand what's going on. I was like in full panic mode, and I felt like the panic was absolutely justified because it it could have been so bad. It was at the time, right? And then, but then you got more information, and you were able to make a, a more informed decision. You yeah, know, to your own personal risk. But yeah, nobody. Well, yeah. Too few people are interested in that. I feel most <laughs> more people are interested in the in the fear mongering, and they really. I mean, they love it. Let's put it this way. Um, I see this in my in my own family. They they love they love this this fear mongering, and they they're not interested in facts. They're like, no, I'd rather go into this fear mode and I'll, I'll stay there as long as I can. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. Thanks for doing this, Mike. No problem, man. Thanks again for the opportunity. It was a really good time.